You're listening to the Ministry Grow Show, brought to you by Reliant Creative, the creative agency for gospel-centered ministries. Find out more at ReliantCreative.org. Welcome to the Ministry Grow Show, a podcast dedicated to helping churches and ministries grow and make more effective impacts for the kingdom of God in an ever-changing digital world. Whether you're building and growing a gospel-centered ministry or leading a church, if you want insight into the strategies, struggles, challenges, and successes of other ministry leaders, you've come to the right place. Welcome back to the Ministry Growth Show. Today on the show, I'm going to be talking with John Barrett. He's the Executive Director of Project Rescue Foundation. John, thanks for being on the show. Uh, Thanks, Zach. It's great to be here today. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about your ministry and and how you guys got started and what you've been up to lately? Sure. Uh, well, as you mentioned, I, I'm the executive director of Project Rescue Foundation. Um, that really, we exist, our foundation exists to support the greater work of Project Rescue. Now, for those of, of, who are listening that don't know what Project Rescue is, we are an anti-trafficking, anti-sexual exploitation ministry uh, that was founded back in 1997 uh, by the founders, David and Beth Grant. Uh, David was a missionary to India. He has been for 50 years. Uh, uh, in 1997, he stumbled upon to the red light district in Mumbai, India, and was just blown away by what he saw. And really it was a hundred thousand girls in a specific red light district. And he couldn't believe that, you know, girls as young as 12 and 13 years old were being forced to do, you know, some of the most unimaginable things you can think of. And he knew he had to do something. And so a few weeks later, uh, some of the friends that he had made for many years in India called him and said, you know, you know some of the women in, the, in this red light district have asked us to take some of their, their children to a place of safety. Can we, can we do this? And without even thinking, David said, of course we can do, do this. And, and that night in 1997, when, when that phone call happened, uh, Project Rescue was born. And uh, since then, obviously, it's, it's grown significantly. Uh, Project Rescue now spans 10 countries across Southern Asia, across Europe, um, and we are making some groundbreaking moves into Africa as well. So what started off in you know, one city and one country in India has now grown significantly. And, and while you know, the staff has changed and while a lot of the cities have changed and the countries we work in has changed, uh, the one thing that hasn't changed is we are a Christ-centered organization that seeks to rescue and restore those who have been either forced into sexual slavery via sex trafficking, or they somehow find themselves in that through their circumstances. And so we exist to, to help with them and then obviously uh, show them a way to, to find Jesus, which is at the core of what we do. That's awesome. So you guys are providing rescue work on the one side, but then within that restoration uh, portion, like uh, when you rescue a girl from sex slavery, are you like, is there a period of time that you're sticking with that girl and introducing her to Christ? And, and what does that restoration process look like? And um, kind of maybe go through that aspect a little bit. Sure. Sure. Well, I, I will say that being in various countries, you learn that the restoration process looks, looks different mm-hmm. based on the context you're in, you know, the rest, the rescue and restoration uh, in India or or Bangladesh or Sri Lanka looks completely different than it does in, let's say, Madrid, Spain, or in you know the north of Africa, where just circumstances are so different, 
and the challenges they face are so different. So for example, uh, you know, within a Southern Asia context, let's just take India because that's, that's really where a significant part of our work or our work is. And so much of the time, what you find are children are basically effectively born into sexual slavery. Their mom was forced and you'll find, hey, my mom did this. My mom's mom did this. Her mom did this. This is just sort of a lineage that's been passed down and I eventually will do it as well. So in, in the Southern Asian context, we're trying to break that cycle, the cycle of, look, you know, we know that, you know, society and, and you know, your, where you live has, has really said that this is what you have to do and this is what you're going to be. But we believe through Jesus that he has greater plans for you. And not only are we going to show you that by, by sharing this news with you, but we're going to offer you the opportunity, you know, to come out of that place, to come into a project rescue home, receive education receive the medical help you need. So in a Southern Asian context, a lot of it is based on building relationships with the women who are trapped. We hope to get them out. We hope to minister to them as well for them to find Jesus. Um, But ultimately, a big part of what we do uh, in India and in those areas is rescuing the children, breaking that that generational cycle. Mm. Uh, Whereas in Europe, a lot of it has to do with you know poverty, where a, a woman or a child, she's promised great opportunity in Europe, if she would just leave Africa or leave Eastern Europe or, or other parts of even Southern Asia where they're brought over. And so they're lied to and they find themselves on the ground where they assume they may be taking a position as a nanny or, or something else. And before they know it, they're on a street corner and they're told they have an arbitrary $60,000 debt that they must work off before they can have their freedom. And so that restoration process is as varied as the trafficking stories that we find across these different nations. Interesting. As you guys have grown this organization from a a mom and pop organization to a little bit more established, um, what has been some of the hardest lessons you guys have learned in in that transition? Yeah, and and the, the interesting part about it is, is I still I feel like we're we're right in the middle of that transition. I I really think the last the last five years really since the the foundation was launched it, it i would define us very much so a mom and pop organization even as as recent as five or six years ago where you know most of the operations of project rescue for the first 10 years were were run out of david and beth grant's basement um, it was in their house they had a basement downstairs there were a couple phones a couple cubicles that were set up and and that's kind of how we did it and it was just david going around from church to church telling people about what's happening and, and people would give. And uh, before you know it, um, opportunities are, are surfacing where you're saying, okay, now we have a chance to move into, you know, this handful of new countries and new cities. And, you know, oh my goodness, we just, we just passed the, you know, $2 million mark in funds raised. And, you know, we need someone to help us motions and we need someone to help us with this, that, and the other thing. And we need someone in finances. And so you run into all these challenges. They're good problems, mind you, but I think I think the biggest challenge when you're going from that mom and pop organization to this, okay, here we are with with a full fledged organization with all these moving parts is you have to find a way to to let go a little bit, and, and that's been a challenge I think for all of us is we're just we were so used to being so hands on in every aspect of everything that we did, whether it was what was happening on the ground, whether it was the fundraising, whether it was you know, what's happening with the website, 
you know, now with social media, you know, the, the, the realistic fact is we can't legitimately get to all those things and do them well. Mm-hmm. You know, you have, you can't control the message. You have to really, you know, empower other people within your organization to say, Hey, you know, we, we know, we see that you have a passion about this, you know, take this part of it, take this social media part of it and run with it, you know, take this aspect of it and run with it. So I think personally, that's been the hardest for, for our organization is just going from where you have your finger on the pulse of what you feel like is every aspect of the organization. And now you're really at a 30,000 foot level in a plane, just saying, all right, right. Trying to make sure that, that everything's in place and really focusing on what are the, what are the two or three things that I do best that, that I can really help this organization grow. And so that's, that's been the challenge is, is, is to sum up to say, you know, I was doing 15 things very, I would say even below average. I was doing all those things. Not, not well, I would say, and, and shifting to a place where I can say, let me focus on doing two or three things really well and empowering other people and trusting other people, you know, to take the baton and, and help us grow this organization. Mm, just like a business setting, always figuring out how you can hire yourself out of a job. <laughs> it's it's interesting because I guess sometimes in the not pro- nonprofit world or in the ministry world, you know, we think, well, that's just business, and, and you know, oh, that's the corporate world, and and in some ways, you know, that that's true. Like it, they are different, but in a lot of ways, as you're trying to scale up, man, there's there's an incredible amount of parallels that you know I had I got my business at university, and I've just been amazed that you know the amount of principles and the amount of you know, concepts that I've been able to apply from uh, my business education to what we're doing. And and there are, like I said, a a vast amount of parallels when you're scaling up an organization, even though it's a nonprofit or a ministry. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Now, how do you guys, how does Project Rescue, um, and this is a bit of a, a loaded question because I've, we have beliefs around this this idea, but um, that are maybe different than what the question is going to point us to. But how do you guys differentiate to your donors when there are other ministries fighting for similar causes? You've got your IJMs out there. Sure. You've got a lot of other human trafficking organizations um, that exist. And, and the, in the ministry space, I don't think there's – I don't believe that there's – uh, a lot of place for competition. I think that we serve a God that is a God of abundance and not scarcity. And so um, this idea of differentiating so that you can compete uh, and, and be more successful than of another organization that does the same thing, um, I, I think is a, a marketing commercial marketing um, mindset that doesn't really apply in the ministry space. Um, but there's still that element of, like we're trying to build a brand. We're trying to um, get people on board with what we're doing specifically. And there are other organizations that are similar that they can give to. Um, so what does that kind of look like? Are you guys, mm-hmm. what do you, how do you think about that with, within sure. Project Rescue? So the interesting part about that is I, I've been asked that question a lot. And, and my response to that is, is always, you know, if there's a church that's launched in Texas, you know, that, that doesn't mean that that church in Texas means we don't have to launch in any churches anywhere else because, hey, mm-hmm. they've got it all taken care of. And, and the fact is that, that the need is great. And, and the analogy is, you know, there's a lot of people that, that need to be saved out there. 
there. And, and as such, we need, a, you know, we need a lot of churches. We need a lot of missionaries. We need a lot of people doing a lot of things. And so in the anti-trafficking space, the interesting part is, is you hear about, you know, these, these organizations that have the big names. You hear about IJM, A21. And my response is, is those are desperately needed because if you just look at the sheer numbers, you know, we're not talking that tens of thousands of women and children and, 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 you know, boys and girls need to be saved from sexual exploitation. We're talking tens of millions, right? You know, as big as, as the biggest organization may be in the anti-trafficking space, you know, if you take IJM, you know, their reach and their effect on individuals, you know, no one even comes close to affecting even close to a million women or children within one, one organization. You know, Mm -hmm. we don't, you know, Last year, we impacted the lives of over 50,000 individuals in some way, shape, or form through our initiatives. You know, there's still, you know, tens of millions out there that, that, that need help. And so I guess I reject the premise that, hey, you know, if, if we're building our brand, that means someone else can't build theirs. I, I think it's a both and where it's, you know, right. I hope IJM succeeds. I hope the way they litigate and the way they go after you know, uh, criminals and prosecute and, and look, look to lobby and change laws. I hope they succeed because their success is going to help us. Now for Project Rescue, um, our focus and what we share with donors is, is the way we go about things is relationship. And here's what I mean by that. Um, we're moving into a new area in Southern Asia. I don't want to say where it is for sensitivity reasons, but right. the first thing we do is not to go in build a home and get kids into the home. The first thing we did, and when this ministry started in 2018, the first six months was simply our staff going into that community and developing relationships with the various people in the community, developing and saying, hey, look, we're here for you. How can we pray for you? And that six months was an intensive, you're getting to, to know the people in the community and you want to become part of the community and you want to add value to the community. It wasn't until mid-2019 that we actually started doing any construction for anything in the way of our homes and the schools that we envisioned in the beginning of the project. When we, when we had this vision to move into this new place, yeah, we wanted to build homes. We wanted to rescue children. We wanted to create a new school where the children could be educated. But even before that, we wanted to um, bring a, a sense of community, a sense of Uh, community development where we're being grafted into the community where it's not these outsiders coming in saying, Hey, you know, look at our Bible, do it our way. This is the way that we're trying to do it. No, we're coming in and saying, look, we, we want to understand you. We want to pray for you. We care for you. And then as those relationships grow and trust is built, then we bring in the other stuff. Then we we bring in the education, the medical, um, and we bring in some vocational training. And of course, um, it usually culminates in building of, of homes where, where children can, can come and, and get away from the red light areas where they're in danger. And so I would say as far as our core competency, if we're talking about, you know, from a business standpoint, cause, cause that's, you know, that's what I know for a core competency or, or our competitive advantage, if you will, it's, it's relationship. It's something that our staff members do incredibly well. Um, I jokingly say, you know, project rescue, we want to be the the, the Chick-fil-A staff members of the anti-trafficking world where they're just so incredibly nice and, you know, they're engaging and you just want to be around them. And, and we feel like our, our ministries on the ground reflect that. They're just amazing people. 
and whether or not they're being paid, what's amazing about them is they were doing this even before they were being paid. And so um, for Project Rescue, we feel like there's room for everyone. There's room for IJMs and the more the better. If they're Christ-centered, if they're doing good work, we need them. And so we, we say, please join the fight. That's awesome. That's uh, so refreshing to hear that you have that mindset because I think that there's a lot of uh, unhealthy competitive competitiveness within the ministry space and especially with working in an industry or or a niche where you guys are the need is so big what there's 40 million people in modern slavery and another 240 in some way shape or form oppressed across the globe like those numbers are staggering and um and so i think ministries can can get in trouble when they start thinking about uh, competitiveness and, and oh, it's, viewing it's, ministry in a mindset that like we serve a God of scarcity. And so sure. have you guys within that same idea, not, not wanting to be competitive, um, but also realizing like, okay, this need is so big that one single individual organization, not even a handful of organizations can even start touching the issue and the projections are just getting worse. And so have you guys thought about like what it could look like for organizations like yours to partner together, to do the same work well together in areas either that you're already working together. And so you don't go in and step on someone else's toes or like you have a slightly different strategy than that may work better in a particular region versus somebody, another organization strategy might work better in another organization. Have you thought through some of those ideas? Sure. Well, very much so. And, and to your point, Zach, I think, I think um, there are situations that have arisen where we felt like another organization was, was better suited to handle it just based on uh, what they do best. Again, I, I use IJM because our, our paths have crossed, you know, at, at different points where, you know, they're looking to, we're, we're looking at the same project and we look at it and say, you know what? Um, this would benefit from significant, you know, legal changes, or if, if if we could get some things changed to, you know, in terms of local governments or things like that, man, it would be much better suited than, than just our relational approach that we're trying to do. So we have definitely acquiesced to other organizations and said, hey, you know, we feel like you're you're a better suit for this. And and another example for us is is locally stateside. So because we were born out of a, uh, out of a missions organization, uh, technically our, the regions we can work in are all outside of the U.S. And so we get calls all the time. We have people coming up to us all the time saying, hey, can you help us? We, we know someone in the U.S. that we think has been trafficked. You know, how can you help us? Mm-hmm. And so we often say, you know what? We don't operate in here, but here's a list of three organizations that we trust. Here's a list of people that we know that are doing some great things. So. I think collaboration is a huge part of it. Um, To that, on the other side of that coin, there are a lot of people and there are a lot of organizations out there that will try to capitalize on the fact that this is a very very emotive topic. Compassion in and of itself is a very emotive topic and funds can easily be raised. So what we try to tell people is, you know, if you want to give to another organization, we say, great, but just please do your research, you know, figure out what they're all about, what it's going towards. And I think that has to do with any type of organization that you support with your dollars is, 
and, and we're getting better at this where people are doing more research. They're not blindly giving to something based on a name or based on, you know, a, a pretty website or something like that is right. do your research and figure out where are the funds going? How are they affecting change? Are they growing? What are their core values? You know, are they, are they actively reflecting those core values in their operations and things of that nature? So I think collaboration is key, but we need to be mindful that we're also, um, we're not taking everything at face value and we need to really do a, a deep dive into the people that we, we want to collaborate with. And we do that. And, and that's the thing is when we, when we recommend someone or when we partner with someone, you know, we believe that, that they are of the highest integrity as well. You've done your homework. Yeah. So to transition a bit, a bit, um, what are you guys doing to communicate the stories of how God is moving through your ministry when you, when you think about communicating to your donors and supporters and, and either in your donor care for a donor, a donor base that's already committed to your organization or a new donor base that you're trying to reach mm. and, and share what God's doing so that they can be a part of that. Sure. So this is sort of where, where we're at a, a definitely a, a turning point or a pivot point for us. Um, Project rescue really was created organic grassroots, David Grant going church to church. And then just as time went on, it was sort of that starfish effect where, you know, you talk to someone, they talk to someone else before you know it, you're 20 years in and, you know, there's a, there's a significant amount of people that have heard about it and that have supported it, you know, within, within the church. And so we are at the point now where that organic reach is, we're starting to shift the focus to, to a larger reach, you know, where I think really where, where the, the industry or where the nonprofit sector is pushing is, okay, you need to get some key individuals think of you know when you think of social media and instagram you talk about influencers you know i don't i don't like it in the same context but you need really ambassadors people with platforms that can help say hey you know what i've seen this i've seen what project rescue does i believe in it so we're trying all kinds of new things where we're we're trying to reach out to people that have never heard about project rescue because one of the things that we really believe in is the fact that hey we are an open book. We've been doing this for 22 years. We've been doing this before it was a hot button issue. And when human trafficking is no longer the hot button issue that it is today, we'll still be here. We'll still be helping children. And so for that reason, you know, we're trying to engage as many people as possible. You know, while the spotlight is on human trafficking, we want to do everything we can to maximize the growth because we know someday, you know, it'll be something else. And someday, you know, the world, you know, the trends change. And, you know, our commitment is that if and when that does happen, we're still going to be here. And we want to build that core support that can help, you know, withstand those changing trends. And so for us, right now, we are making a significant push to reaching out past our organic network that we've built through grassroots efforts and just personal face to face communication and church, you know, church communication and, and things of that nature. Nice. So as you think about your, as, as you think about your, your fundraising year from a marketing standpoint, what is, what does your strategy look like around telling those stories? And, and like, I mean, mm -hmm. all the way down to how often you're communicating, what kind of stories you're telling, um, mm -hmm. you know, where you're placing that content, what does that kind of look like for you guys? Sure. So for us, I think, 
just with the world we live in, people are so bombarded, you know, whether it's social media, whether it's in their mailbox, you know, depending on what the medium is, there's no shortage of, of ways, you know, touch points that organizations are trying to make. And so you do, you, you got to sort of jump in and say, Hey, we're going to be part of that. Um, you know, I, I think anybody would say it's hard for you to, to give to something or it's hard to you for you to connect to something that you forget about. And so the goal is just getting in front of people, not to overwhelm them with information, but just to say, Hey, we're still here. We're still doing this because of the, the technology world that we live in, the proliferation of the iPhone and news and minute by minute stories, you know, you consistently have to get in front of people. So we do try every month in some way, shape or form to have some touch point uh, with our, our, all our donors, whether that's through social media, the people that follow that, whether it's through an email blast or a physical letter. And, and a lot of it breaks, those strata break down in generations with obviously skewing the younger generation is obviously going to connect more with the social media. And that's how they're going to get their info. And, you know, the baby boomers and older, they're going to still like to see, you know, the physical mail hit their mailbox. And so, um, you know, that is something that we are very intentional about is making sure all donors understand not only we're still here and what we're doing, but we, we like to also every quarter we give them a newsletter. Hey, here's what we're up to. Here's what we're doing. And towards the end of the year, here's where we're going. Here's what the future looks like. And here's the vision. And so you're trying to, to stay in front of them, to stay connected with them and also let them understand what their funds are doing. Now, the, I think the, the most important thing out of all of that that is, is the stories, the stories that result from our supporters and what comes of that. And, and we have to be a little careful due to the sensitivities and, and mm-hmm. you know, with, with those that we work with, you know, it's, it, we have to keep identities. Um, you know, we, we can't just publicly share all the information, but, you know, through some stock photos and things like that, we take the actual stories. We simply change the name and change the photo, but Man, it's 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 incredible when you look back at a year and you see, you know, how many lives were ministered to and you see, hey, we're getting ready to launch a new home and we have 150 children are, you know, are going to have destinies that are forever different. You know, it's it's just those are the to me that's the reason when you do what you do. All the the times where you're going through budgets and and you know, marketing meetings and all those things where like, oh, this is so overwhelming. The stories are what make it worth it when you hear about Right. You know, Sunita, Sunita was rescued and, you know, she had, was a victim of rape and she, you know, she was getting ready to take her own life. And then a project rescue worker found her and said, I want to pray with you. And Sunita says, I have been asking God, you know, send someone or else I'm going to take my own life. Those are the types of stories where you're like, my goodness, um, you know, all this time sitting in an office crunching numbers, that's the result of it. That's the result of the work. So it's pretty special. We do our best to share that you know, with our supporters as much as possible. Now, have you guys always had that mindset on, on being heavier story driven in your communication or, or was there a shift from like data statistics, communicating strategy to a a heavier story um, driven communication with your donor base? I, I think I would say there was a shift about five or six years ago. And I think that the shift was this, we, we did a lot of the, the statistics. We did a lot of the, here's where we are, you know, here's where we're going. We stayed a little bit away from the stories for the simple fact 
we didn't want to re-exploit. We didn't want to just simply right. take take a story of a child and and use it for our benefit. And you know, we understood that that this these funds were going to go back to them, but it was just something that we just didn't want to do it. And so we we made a, a commitment that we would be we wouldn't do it that often. And then what changed for us is about five years ago, six years ago, the first wave of children that we rescued started. They were graduated. You know, they had attended college, some of them. And a few of them were coming forward saying, I want to share my story. Mm. I want to share my story. You know, I need to, I was just with a girl, uh, you know, five months ago, we'll call her Priya. It's not her name. We'll call her Priya. And I said to her, cause we were getting ready to film her story. I said, Priya, are you sure you want to do this? And she said, brother Jonathan, she said, Maya Jonathan, brother Jonathan, I know where I came from. I've seen that place. She said, it's one of the worst things I can imagine. She said, if my story can help rescue people like me, she said, I want to tell my story everywhere. Mm. She said, I know how lucky I am and I know what God's done in my life. And, and I had a lump in my throat. I could barely speak, but it was just one of the most impactful, you know, 30 seconds that I've ever had in my project rescue career, which is this girl recognizes what God has done for her, you know, thank the Lord through project rescue. And she's saying, I want to share my story because my story can have a positive impact on others in my situation. Right. So that was a little bit of, of, a, of a shift for us mentally. Like, okay. We will share the stories if the girls are okay with us sharing their stories and they want to. And then as so that's kind of the approach we take. Got Okay, cool. And so as you've made that shift, have you noticed uh, any difference in like the results and, and the, the um, response from your your donors that you're, you're communicating to? For sure. There, there's no way to deny that. Um, I think, you know, if I stood up in front of a crowd and just, you know, regurgitated all the statistics of trafficking, you know, half of them would fall asleep or they'd be on Facebook scrolling. Um, but if you share a story about a particular one of those statistics, Hey, let me tell you about Priya, you know, it engages people and it moves people to action because that statistic, when it becomes a person, it changes everything. Mm-hmm. And so we're not dealing with statistics. The, the 40 million people in modern day slavery, man, you almost sort of glaze over when you hear that number. But when that becomes a reality through a story, it moves people to action. So without a doubt, Zach, we've seen people move to action when we start sharing these stories with them. And the exciting part for us is, you know, these young women and young men who graduate our program are wanting to share their stories. So it really became a win-win for us and, and we're excited to to give them a platform to share that story well it's cool that they your beneficiaries recognized the power of their own story I mean, without you ever having to communicate like hey your story could could help somebody else in a similar situation to you they just recognized that you know my story or my testimony is going to hopefully help in some way shape or form so exactly that's cool that exactly. they had that realization how are you guys working discipleship in your programs? I know that you guys are a faith-based organization sure. and you're very open about that. You communicate that on, all over your website. Mm-hmm. I, um, I think that that's really cool that you're bold about that. Uh, so what does it look like to one, have discipleship like worked into your programs and two, protect your native partners and your beneficiaries within countries that you're working that are maybe hostile to the gospel? Mm-hmm. It's a great question. So for us, the, one of the core principles of Project Rescue is this. We will not 
go anywhere or launch any type of ministry unless there is a local church that is there, present, willing to feed and really mother the ministry. And does that mean we only plant where there's an existing church? No. Sometimes we've gone places and we've planted the church. Um, But basically, we do that for the simple fact of at the end of the day, if we do all this stuff, we rescue them, but they are not discipled and become Christ followers and then disciple others, then we failed. Um, it's all great. You know, it's great if we can get them out, but, but becoming Christ followers of Jesus and disciples of Jesus is why we do what we do. So when we connect with a church or when we plant a church, the goal is that that church becomes a covering for the ministry, becomes the discipleship engine for the ministry where the women and children, you know, on every Sunday, you'll find them in that church worshiping. And obviously the people, the pastors, the leaders in that church, they are agreeing that they're going to take these women and children in Project Rescue under their wing. And they're saying, we're going to nurture them. We're going to help, you know, give them the word, feed them the gospel and and make sure that they're uh, getting all the things they need uh, to, to help them spiritually. And so the discipleship is, it's a beautiful thing because it's not this colonial, we're coming from the West with our money and our, uh, our faith saying, Hey, you know, do it this way, or, you know, they're doing it within their own context. These local churches are doing it um, by the word within their own context. And it's just wonderful because it's worked and it's worked really well. Um, And we're seeing so many children come through the program that are uh, graduating healthy and disciples of Jesus. And here's an amazing stat. I don't love stats, but this is an amazing stat. Our I, you know, we took all of our ministries and we did um, basically, hey, what is the success rate of those who come into our program and graduate with what we determine is a healthy, independent graduation? And we are over 80 percent, and wow. which is an amazing number given the we work with significant trauma in those that we work with. And yeah. so plus 80 when I heard that number, like I was hoping it was maybe, you know, we'd be getting close to 50 or something like that that. And then when we did the math on it, we were like, we were over 80%. We just had this amazing amounts of gratitude toward God. And and we had to look, say, why is that? And we feel like that discipleship piece is a huge part of it because we're walking with them. And even after they, they leave our home, you know, we put in place mentors that stay connected with them. Hey, how are you doing? How's, how's this going? And so it's not just a finite period of time where they're, they're, with us, we send them off and hope for the best. No, we're, we're staying connected with them. Now, when you guys, back to that relationship-focused model, when you go into a, an area before you plant a home um, and you're building relationships with the community, does part of that process look like making disciples and building relationships early on so that maybe there isn't a church or even a, a single believer in an area but through building relationships in that region, you can make disciples and start a church and then have a church that you can then invest yeah. in and, and make beautiful and partner with in the work that you guys are doing. Is that kind of the, the structure behind that, that relationship-focused sure. model? I mean, yes. You hit the nail on the head. So it is the relationship-focused model is to build trust, but also, you know, to to – start that process to plant the seeds and you hope as quickly 
quickly as possible that they accept Jesus. Because we have found in almost 100% of the cases when it comes to sexual tracking, sexual exploitation, forced prostitution, at spirit almost every priest, especially for the ones that are trapped, um, not as much for the children if we can get them out early. But what that means is they come to the, the knowledge and saving power of Jesus way before even they are physically released and or rescued, which is hard for some people to reconcile. How can you be saved and still be forced to do that? Well, like you said, the, the operative word there is forced. They are right. forced to do that. So many of the women, if not all of the women that, that let us take their children to one of our homes, it's because of that relationship and it's because they've accepted Christ that they agree to send their kids to a Christian organization because we don't we don't hide that in any way so many of the children we have their mothers have also accepted jesus not in every case but in most cases and and they're on their own journey of discipleship and and you know making jesus the the lord of their life so it definitely is a huge aspect of of and it's happening right now in three different ministries that will be launching probably late 2020 or 2021 there are staff members visiting these locations right now as we speak, you know, connecting with uh, the the people of those communities and, and sharing the word and, you know, doing acts of kindness that would elicit questions of why are you doing this? What is causing you to do this? And, and, and it gives us the opportunity to share. That's really amazing. Now, are you guys, especially in that your, your India, Southeast Asia, locations um are you using your own 501c3 and and how are you getting support into in country or do you have a partner in country that has that or you have you established it i can't remember what it's called in india but essentially india's version of a 501c3 sure what does that kind of look like yeah so we for the longest time now we have encouraged all of our ministries overseas to secure and be become officially an autonomous local 501c3 NGO within their city and within their country, within their local context. And there's, there's a very specific reason for that. We we didn't want to tie all of our organizations together with under the same name, under the same organization for fear that, you know, as, as government shift, as, as things come up, we don't want one connected to the other. And if one one has challenges, we don't want that creating challenges, systemic challenges through the entire network. Uh, as such, as much as possible, each ministry is its own autonomous 501c3. With that said, there are some places that, that because they are younger or they just haven't had the time or they haven't had the approvals yet, um, we do have a centralized not-for-profit that is project rescue in various areas. And in that way we can facilitate funding and, and other types of resources uh, um, through those channels if and when necessary. But again, the, the, the ultimate goal in all this and, and our best practice is that these organizations become self-sustaining and autonomous. And, and, you know, the way they do that, there's a whole nother show for the way that they can do that. But the, the self-sustainability, the goal is that within the first really five to 10 years, depending on the location, depending on how difficult it is, we ask them that no more than 50% of their support comes from our national office here in the U.S. So 
the goal is that each year they're securing more and more localized funding and that eventually um, they become self-sustaining. And what's great is our earliest, uh, our earliest ministries that, that started in 1997, there's three or four of them that at this point, you know, we used to be 100% of all of their funding. And for three of them, we are less than 7% of their funding now. So, and wow. it's a significant, it, they've, they've raised a significant amount of local support, uh, support from, from other countries in the UK and Australia. And so that to us is just the healthiest way to do it. We look at ourselves as sort of a ministry, you know, angel investor where we see the vision, we see how this can work. Um, but our goal is we're going to invest big up front and we're going to give a, a long arc to grow. But the health and the sustainability is really comes in a local context. We feel like. That's really cool. That's awesome that you've seen that kind of success within that sustainable uh, autonomous approach. Hmm. That's, that's great. Um, so is that, is, is that ran through the churches that you're establishing within each location or is, are there churches partnered with a separate NGO ministry and, and they do their work through the ministry, but they're, they're both separate. So it, it happens in a variety of ways. Um, again, when you have, I think now we're close to 24 or 25 different homes and, you know, in all the locations that we're in, it it happens in a variety of ways. Some of it is run through the local churches that we've created and and that does happen a fair amount. And some of them are direct to the the localized NGO that's been created. So, you know, we'll create, uh, you know, we'll send funds or we'll send support directly to the NGO. And again, you know, there are challenges with, with any and all of these. I mean, Ultimately, we feel like the wave of the future is business as missions, where we want to hopefully partner and or create some legitimate for-profit businesses by which uh, ministries can be sustained. And again, that, that's probably a whole nother show about what that looks like. But that is something I just had a, a, about an hour phone call yesterday. You know, we're in the embryonic stages of seeing how can we do that? What does that look like? You know, yeah. how, can, what, how can that create sustainability? And, 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 you know, what, what are the things we need to do to, to put in place to make that successful? Cause we're not, we're not even talking about shell companies, if you will, that are just, Hey, they're pastors. No, we're talking about legitimate businesses that could also have the ancillary benefit of saying, Hey, we also have children that are graduating our program. They may need some jobs. So it has the ancillary benefit of maybe even providing a, a job structure for some of the women and children that, that graduate our programs. That's so great. I love that. Well, John, this has been awesome. I think that this has provided a ton of value for other ministry executives. Um, before we get off the call, can I pray for uh, Project Rescue? Do thank you, Father. I just lift up Project Rescue and John um, as he is part of this leadership team, and I pray that you would just guide their team, guide John, and uh, bless this organization. I pray that you would work powerfully through Project Rescue, that you would continue to save and redeem and rescue and uh, just do what you do best, Lord. Uh, Thank you that we've been invited into this um, journey and process and story, Father. Uh, I say it almost every episode, but uh, you could do this without us, uh, but you've chosen to invite us into this. And so we thank you that we get to be a part of what you're doing. Uh, We get to we get to see how you are 
um, just flexing in powerful ways all over the world. And it's just so exciting that, that we get to see that and be a part of that. So thank you, Father. You are good. And uh, we love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Appreciate that, Zach. Thanks so much. Yeah, of course. John, if people want to get a hold of you or, or learn more about Project Rescue, how can they do that? Best way, uh, www.projectrescue.com. All about the organization and, and ways to get in touch with us and you know pray for us or whatever it is that, that you can do to to help or um and, and we're also you know love what you're doing zach and the way that you're giving people a variety of vantage points as to how to grow ministries because you know a lot can be learned you know there are a lot of brilliant people out there doing brilliant things and it's great you know that that uh you can share kind of the, the victories of different ministries and what they're doing and what works maybe what doesn't and so i uh, love what you're doing well thank you i appreciate that And thanks again so much for being on the show, John. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Ministry Grow Show. If you enjoyed it, we'd appreciate it if you rate and or review us on the iTunes store. And make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. If you have a story to share with other ministry directors and pastors, or know someone who would be an incredible guest on the Ministry Grow Show, let us know. We love connecting with ministry executives and sharing their wisdom and insight with our audience. Just send us an email at info at reliantcreative.org. And lastly, if you need help telling your ministry story, we would love to share how we can help in that process. Check out Reliant Creative at reliantcreative.org. See you next time.